I was a closet hipster for most of my work life. During the day, I wore professional attire, only to come home at night and immediately throw on my thrift store togs. My roommate Mike used to laugh at me in the morning, wearing what he called my work drag. And I was in drag. Hello, and welcome to Personal Disclosures. I'm Nancy Beckett, and I'm your host. Eight people signed up for one of my humorous writing classes here in Chicago at the Second City Training Center, where I've taught for more than 15 years. They entertained the hell out of each other, bonded and shared secrets they'd never told anyone. And now they're revealing their truth to you. These stories have so much meaning and quality because they are written. I mean, people are a huge pain in the ass, generally speaking, myself included, and they'll bore you to death if you let them. But in these episodes, what you'll discover is how interesting people actually are on paper. It'll surprise you, and you're going to want more. So please, go to our website at personaldisclosures.com. See more of us. Tell us what you think. And disclose some of your own truth, why don't you? Okay, so here's how it's going to go. After one person reads a personal disclosure, we're going to riff, we're going to cross-talk, we're going to get crazy and funny, and contradict each other, and then we're going to move on. You're not going to know who's talking in these commentaries. That's okay. There's nothing you're going to miss. Just listen to the things that people say to one another as writers in a room reading together. And after a couple of episodes, you'll know who we are. This episode is going to look at various and sundry facets of work. You know, W-E-R-K. Freud said there's just two things, love and the W word. Next up, we have Sharon Hearn, who is many things. She knocked around a little bit in the military, but she's a Midwestern gal. And Sharon is what a lot of us writers are. She's a person who just got caught up in the wrong stuff and started making a living. It's easy to do. You forget who you are, you forget what makes you happy, and you're down the MBA or the accountancy rabbit hole before you know it. Closet hipster. I was a closet hipster for most of my work life. During the day, I wore professional attire, only to come home at night and immediately throw on my thrift store togs. My roommate Mike used to laugh at me in the morning, wearing what he called my work drag. And I was in drag. Monday through Friday, I staged an elaborate illusion of a young woman interested in a professional career, lip-syncing my way through meetings and work social events. The really, really hilarious thing, though, is I thought I was cheating them, the man, corporate America, capitalism, when in reality I showed up every day at 8.30 a.m. sharp to cheat myself out of my own energy, creativity, and authenticity. In the early years of my career, I cared only about dressing as cheaply as possible. It's not exactly that I didn't care what I looked like at work, it just wasn't the highest imperative. The corporate office environment of the early 90s was more like the 1960s than the 20-teens. At the insurance company I worked at in Minneapolis, you could still smoke at your desk. <laughs> your female coworkers, 
if they liked you, warned you which members of senior management to not get into an elevator alone with. Men were not to leave their workstations without donning their suit jackets. Sportswear separates for men were strictly forbidden. One check jacket with navy slacks could mean the quiet death of your career. <laughs> not that any man in 1990 would have been caught dead in a check jacket. The rules for women's business attire were much more flexible. A dress, a skirt with a sweater or jacket, really anything except, of course, pants. <laughs> I still puzzle over how showing your legs was somehow considered more professional than not showing your legs. <laughs> the men I worked with complained vociferously over the unfairness of female employees being allowed to wear sweater sets when they were required to wear a suit every day. Reverse discrimination is a Jersey knit bitch. <laughs> Still, there were days in the office when I thought I was killing it. My mom had bought me a bronze-colored suit that had a high-waisted skirt with a wide waistband and a short-waisted jacket with big, round brass buttons. Yeah. On a training trip in New York City, I went to an edgy $25 walk-ins-only salon and got an extremely short haircut, performed exclusively with an electric razor. With that hair and wearing that suit, I swanned around like a French supermodel. Sometimes I would sneak a thrift store find into my work outfits rotation. Oh, how I laughed up my sleeve on the days that I wore my Pendleton wool suit with a pleated skirt and a little Peter Pan collar that I'd purchased at Ohio's largest thrift store. That was the actual name of the store as well as a description of its dimensions. My sister Carol and I would shop there whenever I was visiting her in Columbus, and we'd each leave with a garbage bag full of clothes. I also had a long-sleeved, rayon, bright pink dress with a sweetheart neck that buttoned up the front with fake mother-of-pearl buttons. I absolutely loathed that dress, but it had been on sale for half off at a department store, so I bought it and wore it to work once a week until it disintegrated. The women that were part of my MBA cohort interviewed every man jack of them in a boxy navy blue two-piece suit with, and it still horrifies me to recount, a little plain blue or paisley bow tie around the collar of a plain white blouse. Not a dapper, tidy men's bow tie, but a drooping little bow that made them look like sad Christmas presents. I booked the trend mightily by interviewing in a charcoal gray suit with a long skirt and a tailored jacket and prided myself on my rebelliousness. What my coworkers thought of me is hard to say. Some certainly thought I was eccentric. Most weren't observant enough to notice my tiny insubordinations. But I will say this. They were infinitely more generous in overlooking my oddities than I was in scorning their conformities. Mm -hmm. The accountants and actuaries I worked with regularly invited me to parties or happy hours, which I assiduously avoided. Gary, one of the guys in my department, was very excited about hosting a monthly poker game. Whenever Gary invited me, I would ask, oh, when is it? Gary would reply, Tuesday night, or next Thursday, or we're thinking about having it the first Monday of every month, to which I'd invariably reply, darn, I already have something Tuesday night, next Thursday, every Monday for the next several decades. <laughs> After three or four iterations of this, one day Gary cornered me and asked point blank, Sharon, when can you come play poker? Having no choice but to capitulate, I named a date and time and then showed up to Gary's house an hour late. 
The game was well underway when I arrived. My coworkers sat at the kitchen table, scanning their five-card draw hands with little piles of dried beans sitting on the table in front of them in lieu of poker chips. Let me be clear. My coworkers weren't playing for beans that represented dollars or quarters or even nickels. They were literally playing for beans. <laughs> It's a terrible and terribly true stereotype about accountants that they are the most risk-averse people on the planet. The entire point of gambling is that there are stakes. If there's no chance of winning or losing money, you should be playing hearts, not poker. I took the place made for me at the kitchen table, counted my stock of beans, and was dealt in the next round. I bluffed every single hand and won a very big pile of beans. <laughs> After about an hour, I pretended to be meeting friends so I could leave early. I graciously left approximately two burritos worth of pinto beans winnings behind. <laughs> I also indulged in my own private little jokes in the office. In meetings, I'd keep secret tallies of the number of sports metaphors used. Whenever I needed a document signed, I'd say in a ringing voice, just need your John Hancock right here, which I found inordinately amusing. <laughs> One Halloween, I stopped every person I met in the hall or break room and exclaimed, no, no, don't tell me. You're Alan Greenspan, right? Lee Iacocca? Or <laughs> that is the most amazing Janet Reno costume. I received a few hostile stares in response, but mostly just a lot of blank looks. After years and years of campaigning by the employee club, the CEO finally relented and casual Fridays were instituted. The guidelines were very explicitly laid out in a printed memo distributed to all staff. Allowed, clean, pressed khakis or dress pants, clean, pressed shirts or polo shirts, sweaters without holes. <laughs> Not allowed, shirts without collars, shorts, tank tops, tube tops, bikini tops, mini skirts, plaid with stripes. I never ceased to be thoroughly enraged about casual Fridays as I endlessly whined to my friends, oh, thanks so much. Now I have two work wardrobes to maintain. But to be honest, on the days when I hated my job the most and despaired most deeply of ever having a job I sincerely cared about, I would glance at the casual Friday guidelines tacked to my cube wall and smile over tube tops. <laughs> yeah. All right. Do you think that all accountants really are as bad as she says, or is it Minnesota accountants? I thought, well, maybe they're just even worse. And oh, hey, how are you, Fred? <laughs> no, I know way too many. I've been a client of big accountants. I've had big accounting firms like the Big Five as my clients. And I married someone who hides that he is a CPA. <laughs> he doesn't even tell anyone. <laughs> Should I not tell the world? No, it is now. now. It's yeah. sexy. It's out of the bag it's very now. sexy. You're helping him live authentically. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should have figured out in college that it wasn't on the right path when I truly had friends who thought that my being an accounting major was an elaborate joke that I was <laughs> continually spinning. There are certain things that Sharon just gives zero fucks about, so I don't know how accounting jives with that. Well, she's good at it. 
Forensic accountants. That's like a whole other breed. <laughs> what is oh. that? They're like the ones who like go into financial records and like look for fraud. And Ooh. like sometimes they like moonlight on like CSI Miami or whatever. Ooh. I've been a, I've been a forensic accountant. Really? Oh, Holy oh like shit. maybe you busted Enron and we don't even know. Right? I can't. I can't. Uh, confirm that. or deny. An NDA <laughs> is involved, perhaps. I do have to say, too, I can't believe in 1990, it doesn't seem that long ago that women could not wear pants to the it office. sounded like something out of Mad Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I'm like, with really the smoking at the desk. I stand by my statement that it was more like 1960s than now because yeah. it was just, it was, right. it was so much more formal and hierarchical. Mm. I, I learned uh, right before we started that uh, Sharon was a high school uh, volleyball and basketball star. Yeah, and well. it was the least <laughs> surprising thing I'd ever heard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then you're comparing yourself to a French model I thought was also like perfect because I can totally imagine it with your pixie haircut yeah, totally. and your yeah. super tall stature. Right. This is Julie Bashkin, the executive producer. Anyone can and should do what we're doing here. Visit our website, personaldisclosures.com, to make your own disclosures. We have celebrity comedians and best-selling authors who will work with you individually. Whether you're an experienced writer or have never attempted to do this in your life, we can make you funny, smart, and interesting on paper. And now, some more provocative stories. Okay, so next up is <laughs> Julie Bashkin with a fairly long story about her first work experience as a consultant. Oh, don't you know? Julie, by the way, is no stranger to hard work, so don't get me wrong. But this particular story has an amazing payoff. So please hang in there, because you are not going to believe what a stupid smart person she is. <laughs> Wait for that Chicago and Russian accent. Oh, yeah. Oh, that get, was the both. best. Guys, guys, yeah. guys. <laughs> this is the skinny on lean. I woke up to a view of the Alps in my room in Kidsbiel, Austria, in the most plush bed I've ever been in. Jet-legged and hungover from the welcome reception the night before, I step out of bed onto the heated tile floor and decide to take in the views from my bathtub. Because why not take a bath at 7 a.m. instead of going to my Excel modeling class? A smart person would have gone to the training to do well in their job, to succeed, and then be able to stay at more hotels like this. But not me. No, I was worried I won't ever get the opportunity to stay at another nice hotel because they'll realize they made a hiring mistake. Plus, I'm a failure in the whole marshmallow experiment. I can't delay gratification. On this first day of my first real adult job, I already became a delinquent and skipped the first class. This is 10 years ago. At age 26, I have no idea why they hired me, what this job even is, and how long I will keep up the farce before being found out that I will never add value. But there is one thing I know for sure. I will never again stay at a youth hostel. (laughs) But I knew it wouldn't be a cakewalk, as consulting firms have a reputation for being up or out. Kidsbuell is a luxury ski town in the Austrian Alps, favored by Russian oligarchs and their 25-year-old fourth wives. This three-week adult camp equipped with saunas and rock climbing walls is where the newest hires The best and the brightest non-MBAs were assembled to get a mini crash course condensed into an MBA curriculum. 
The other hires were mostly economists, engineers, doctors whose skills translated nicely to serving clients in industrial and healthcare sectors. I was the only oddball who came from a humanities background, and so I was automatically labeled creative, a designation that made my former grad school colleagues laugh. Among my mini MBA colleagues were the most accomplished people I had ever met. I was literally surrounded by brain surgeons and rocket scientists. Forget their New England prep schools and Ivy League educations, that was the least impressive thing about them. These people were also Olympic athletes, climbers of the highest mountains in the world, founders of nonprofits that fed multiple villages in Africa. And here I was, having done jack shit with my life, besides thumbing through boring microfilm in dingy Moscow archives. But by this point in my life, I was used to and very much liked being the least talented person in every room. <laughs> Just like in real estate, where one should prefer to be the cheapest house on the block because the more expensive houses increase the value of the cheapest. I'm basically a masochist in this way, and I always do this to myself. So while I showed up at breakfast, having already missed the first class, with my hair dripping wet, everyone else who was equally jet-lagged and had drank a lot more than I did the night before, showed up freshly dressed and well put together after having run 10 miles, not only for exercise, but also so as not to miss the sights of the beautiful Alpine Lakes. They were ready to tackle any academic team assignment that would be thrown their way. These were people who barely slept for fear of missing out on achievement while sleeping. <laughs> and somehow, we also had the most culturally stereotypical people from every country. The Germans were buttoned up in every way, from their clothing to their promptness and their very German discomfort with ambiguity, such as, which pub would we be drinking at after class? The Italian wore his shirt unbuttoned to his belly button and hit on all of the women, all four of us. <laughs> and the Russian looked and sounded like a KGB agent, interrogating and barking orders at his assigned teammates. Moving on to the team rooms after the morning lecture, during which I understood maybe 10% of finance theory, the Russian leaned over to me and demanded in front of the whole mock client team, what the fuck have you contributed? <laughs> if this was the expectation during firm training, I was for sure screwed for the actual client work. It is with this baggage of having discovered that I know nothing and have accomplished even less, I returned to Chicago for my first real client assignment. Yeah, lean them out. I can do this. I've lost 20 pounds myself once. <laughs> I assure myself... My first assignment was lean maintenance, a pro bono project at an urban transit authority. Perhaps it was my ESL, which always gives me away when it comes to idioms, or it was my lack of business education. But needless to say, I entered a world where most of the time I had no idea what anyone was talking about, and they were even more confused by me than I was by them. <laughs> But really, what could go wrong at the place where 40-year-old train carts were being sent to be fixed after having circled the city on wooden stilts in 30-degree weather and 5 feet of snow? I don't know how to use PowerPoint or Excel. I didn't go to business school, and I'm not an engineer, and I know nothing about maintenance. I'm also not so organized, and I'm not really a details person, but I'm a fast learner. You won't have to show me anything twice. <laughs> that was my introduction to my manager, Patricia. Patricia was the epitome of a female businesswoman leading a team. She didn't speak much, but everything she said was substantive. Oh boy, I have my work cut out for me. I'm sending you out into the field. 
follow the maintenance guys for a couple of hours and come back with a spaghetti diagram. God bless Patricia and her patience. <laughs> and what is this? She pointed her finger up and down my toes to my neck. You may want to go pick up a couple of suits at Ann Taylor. I don't do suits, and I sure as fuck don't shop at... And then I stopped, short of insulting her, after I looked Patricia up and down. <laughs> she was buttoned up in her physical appearance as she was in her leadership style. Everything was crisp, starched, and tucked in. After realizing I would be walking around a maintenance shop in my six-inch heeled boots, I did have to admit she was onto something, though, with her flat penny loafers. Getting dressed a couple of hours earlier, I thought I was looking really sharp in my black puffed sleeved and stand-up collar shirt dress and my blue suede over the new boots that had decorative zippers across the toes. <laughs> I'm thinking professional, but also a bit funky. Not your standard blue shirt consulting uniform. Really translates the, I'm kind of like the rest of the consultants here, but not really at all, aspect of my personality. Patricia, on the other hand, was thinking, what the fuck is this kid thinking? Except she was thinking it out loud. <laughs> Patricia was 10 years older than me but only two years ahead of me career-wise as she was hired a bit later in her career she later made up for that and made partner faster than anyone else in her former life she managed a Ford auto plant with hundreds of employees she was somehow authoritative and commanding while simultaneously being empathetic and understanding and she had a personality. She cracked plenty of self-deprecating jokes to fake being an extrovert as she admitted that cramming six people into a tea room the size of a closet in a basement with no windows was her introverted worst nightmare. <laughs> this was a terrible situation because I couldn't even hate her. I couldn't talk shit about my boss. Despite being my polar opposite, she was really quite likable and as a woman, even inspiring. She was an adulting pro. This only added to my anxiety. I'm supposed to go from this to her in two years? How? I walked into the maintenance floor and found the manager I was told to stick to like white on rice. He was leaned over something with his butt up in the air, his plumber's crack showing. In a thick Southside Chicago accent, he said without looking at me, You guys figure your shit out down there? I was just going to get a snack. Then, crawling out from underneath a cabinet, he took one look at me and doubled over in laughter. You're the expert here? How long you been doing this, kid? It didn't help that at age 26, I looked about 20. I replied, yeah, I'm in my first year of consulting, and they hired me from a PhD program where I've been in worse situations than this. You think this is going to be tough? What about a Soviet archive in Moscow with no heat in the dead of winter? I, of course, didn't tell him it was my first day. I was a dropout, didn't finish my PhD program, which was not engineering or economics or anything remotely related to this, and I wasn't at the archive as an operations expert, but instead was reading microfish newspaper articles about Jewish women entrepreneurs. <laughs> well, I survived my half day with my Southside Chicago friend and came back to the team room to share my spaghetti diagram learnings with the team. Guys, guys, look at this. I also have a Chicago accent, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's all over the place, running around looking for parts that are disorganized in opposite sides of the warehouse, nowhere to be found. I can't make this guy be any more active than he already is. By the way, the maintenance process is a bit of a mess. We might want to focus on that instead. Wide-eyed silence. Then, fake laughter. They thought I cracked a cheesy joke and laughed to be polite. Then... Silence again. Everyone realized I was serious. All I heard all morning was, trim the fat, 
lean them out. And the article I read on the way to the facility was all about the employers needing to reduce recent rising health costs associated with overweight employees, diabetes, and heart disease. I thought this was a weight management problem we were here to solve. <laughs> I honestly thought we were there to find opportunities to make employees lose weight and link it to the savings the transit authority would get from improved health care costs. Oh, God. <laughs> so this was March 2008. I'm not sure how far up I've come in the last 10 years, but I'm still not out. I still have a constant fear of being found out that I have no talents. It must be how Donald Trump feels every day. And like him, I've acted out often in my career. On the one hand, I'm insecure and fear being found out. And on the other hand, I have a sense of entitlement and demand that I get to do whatever I want because I'm not like everyone else. And why shouldn't I shake up the corporate snow globe a bit? And they've attempted to impeach me many times, but I just won't leave. <laughs> All right. The word that I've always used for those corporate events are boondoggles. Boondoggles, for sure. <laughs> Julie took a pretty lighthearted approach, very Russian lighthearted approach, to describing herself as an outsider, etc. Or your word is compromat, right? Yeah, compromat, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. So I found it really relatable because we're the same age, and I feel like I'm always just faking it to make it in jobs. Like, sometimes I'm like, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but for some reason it works. <laughs> like I think, I think, I think that's a lot a of people, pretty common. It, it's a pretty yeah. common feeling, th- and you yeah. have to you have to act like you you should be there. Yeah. You know, or I mean, what's the line? You know, act like you've been here before. Yeah. And you do that. I mean, the first few years of your career until you just hit this point where I'm the man. I mean, who, why the hell am I listening to anybody? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it all feels so inefficient. I don't know that, <laughs> yes. that, that we're yes. all out there just groping in the darkness, hoping that we land somewhere that's somewhere near what yeah. we're supposed to land. Both of you and Sharon kind of highlighted fashion and how you used your work clothes to kind of maintain your identity in this field where it, the way you describe it, it's almost like everyone else shares an identity. Mm-hmm. And I, I relate to that so much. Mm-hmm. Like, I completely understand. I wear quirky jewelry and stuff just to, like, remind them that, like, I'm not the same. It's a little bit... Subversive. Like, yeah. And desperate. It is. It's futile. <laughs> it's really lame, like, when I think about it. <laughs> but I'm but close. I get it. It's, it's real. I think it's interesting to balance the kind of need for subversive fashion choices against the kind of struggle of imposter syndrome. So it's mm. like this like sense that like I'm not one of these people, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm faking it, but at the same time, I need to prove to them that I'm not the same. Well, and the thing she said about you either go up or you get out, that scared me, just hearing that. There's a lot think... of anxiety-provoking moments <laughs> yeah. in, in this story because the whole time you're, you're not sure what you're doing and that's anxiety-provoking. Yeah, you really stressed us out, Julie. Yeah, I'm so well, stressed and right I, now. And I could understand why she th- she was doing math and thinking, how am I going to get where Patricia is? I mean, she started right. later than I did. And it's just like, really? And she liked this woman. Yeah. Right. You know, it wasn't like she was trying to get over on her. It was just like the only way you could think. But I think it's it also was- Julie's way of thinking because always has another woman that's a part of your story that you describe in detail, either her personality or whatever. I, I can't think of a story that you've written that doesn't have another prominent female involved in that whatever situation you're describing. And I think mm-hmm. it's just a lens through which you 
see yourself, that you can see others. I, I don't know. I just find that to be I've interesting. Never thought about that until you just brought it up, and it's so true. But every yeah. single story you've read, I feel like, has a strong woman character in it. Besides yeah, this goes to back with like your relationship with your mom. Well, and both of her parents. I think be- yeah. part of it is the immigrant thing. Like, where are you going to get your role models? They're obviously taking hits right and left, coming right. to the country, and. And they're like, fucking America, this and that. And yeah. So she had to get out on her own and identify with people that she felt were right. the best for her to be around. And she did. But it was a survival strategy, I think. And I'm not, I don't know that Julie's ashamed of her people. No. But she's definitely like, this and a token will get me on the subway. <laughs> like about certain mm. levels of awareness. So, you know, her parents yeah. are not really helpful. No, I think Julie's I, I got really, a lot to like talk that. about therapy yeah. next week. Yeah. <laughs> There's also the interesting dichotomy in almost all of Julie's stories that is the like really overweening desire to succeed and succeed at a yes. very high level, mm-hmm. counterbalanced by the willing to throw it all away by not playing by the rules. Yeah, that was ballsy not to go to that first session mm-hmm. yeah ballsy or stupid <laughs> maybe both yeah yeah we could venn diagram ballsy and stupid and they probably overlap that's such yeah. a consulting framework <laughs> thank you <laughs> i think you're having an influence on me it's also funny because it would look like balls <laughs> i didn't say that balls are always funny always. <laughs> kind of uh, true get us out of yeah. here <laughs> Next up, we have another great story from uh, Tony Dowell. I honestly, he kind of surprises me because he's got this real cute front with the Hoosier business and the family and all that. But this guy is a little bit deeper than you'd ever imagine. It kills me. He gets me every single time he gets me. This particular story, I guess you could call this work. I guess you could call it business that he goes into, but it's all about how Tony finds not just the strength, but it's courage. That's what it boils down to. If you're going to see things through, if you're going to get to the end, if you're going to wait until it works out, you need courage. The Colette gift card never disappoints. (laughs) If I gave you 100 guesses of the jobs I have held, there is one you would never get. Hell, I could give you a thousand guesses. If you guess busboy, waiter, camp counselor, bartender, salesman, engineer, or lawyer, you would be right, at least at some point in time. But there's one job I had that you would never guess. Go ahead, try it. Take a guess, or a hundred guesses if you want. I've played this game many times, usually on first dates. No one ever gets it. Okay, enough. I managed a women's clothing store. (laughs) Here's the story. In early 2011, when we lived in West Lafayette, Indiana, my wife Trish told me that she wanted to buy a local women's clothing store called Colette. Trish was friends with the owner, a woman from Chicago, who had started the store several years earlier when her daughter was a student at Purdue. The store sold high-end women's clothing lines like Free People, Splendid, B.B. Dakota, and Seven for All Mankind. And Trish shopped there, because of course she did. She (laughs) shopped everywhere that sold high-end women's clothing. Trish was very into fashion. I had never heard of Colette, 
or Free People or Splendid or BB Dakota or Seven for All Mankind, for that matter, because I'm a guy. It's great stuff, and there is no other place like it in town, Trish told me. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a reason there's not another place like it in town. <laughs> I thought, but did not say to Trish. The Lafayette area was notoriously cheap, mainly inhabited by factory workers, professors, and nine months out of the year, college students. People with money in Lafayette and West Lafayette, and there were some, tended to drive an hour south on I-65 to Indianapolis or two hours north on I-65 to Chicago to buy nice things. But Trish had her mind set on buying this clothing store. I ran the numbers and began to convince myself that maybe it could work. My law firm was doing well at that point, and so we could afford it, or so I thought. And maybe it would actually make money. That's how businesses work, right? <laughs> More importantly, Trish wanted to buy the store. Trish had not worked outside the house since I got my first job after law school. Trish volunteered everywhere and was the cheerleading coach at the girls' middle school, but had not worked at a full-time job since 1994. I made the money. She took care of everything else. It really worked out pretty well. But now she wanted something more, and I owed her at least that after 15 years at home with the kids. We closed on the store May 1 of 2011. Three weeks later, Trish was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. Trish didn't know this, but the doctors gave her little hope for recovery. The cancer had already spread from the lemon-sized tumor in her colon to her lungs, liver, thyroid glands, and the lining of her abdominal wall. After surgery to remove the main tumor, while Trish was still in post-op, I asked the surgeon about Trish's chances for recovery. If you ask me that question, I have to give you an honest answer, the surgeon told me. That was obviously not good. I have never seen cancer so bad in a woman so young, she continued. Trish was 45. She might have 18 months, maybe, if the chemo goes well. Three years would be a miracle, the surgeon told me. Trish made it 10 months. After recovering from surgery, Trish returned to Colette and worked as much as she could. She loved every minute of it. All of Trish's friends visited the store often, usually buying something, but sometimes just stopping in to say hi. Our daughters, aged 14, 16, and 18 at the time, also worked in the store and loved spending time there with their mom, talking about what was selling well and what they would order next for the store. Sales were brisk. Given the cancer, I considered asking the previous owner if she would take the store back. But I never mentioned that thought to Trish. To think that way would have admitted that Trish was going to die. In August, we received notice that our lease for the store would not be renewed. Our building was being torn down to build a hotel, so the space would no longer be there. We were given an option to move to another similar location in the same shopping plaza. At that point, since sales were strong, I had the bright idea of moving to an even larger space and a space closer to the Purdue College campus. Although somewhat close to campus, Colette was not actually on campus. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Trish grew sicker in the fall of 2011 and was not able to work as much as she had. We appointed Renee, a recent Purdue grad, as manager of the store and started paying her a salary. Trish spent less time at the store and more time in chemo treatments, but was still involved in all the purchasing decisions. Meanwhile, at our new location on State Street, we began renovating the new space. I had recently hired my good friend Skip to work for me full-time on my farm, where we were attempting to mine peat moss and start a soil business, which is an entirely different story. <laughs> Skip is very handy and headed up the renovations of the new store with me as his main assistant. That's where it started. Rather than suing companies for infringing patents, where I actually do make money, I was instead hanging drywall, painting, and building cool store displays. 
I was also pouring money into the renovations, which cost a fortune. We ordered more clothes to fill the larger space, which also involved getting out the checkbook, my checkbook. We ordered new computers and the best point-of-sale software and scanners and a video security system. An investment, I told myself. As the day neared when we had to be out of the old store, we worked day and night on the new store. Many of our family, especially my dad and friends in the community, pitched in to help. Although Trish couldn't do much at that point, she often joined us while we worked at the new store. And our friends and family helped to paint, lay tile, hang curtains, organize, and get the store ready. Our community rallied around Trish and her store and came together to make the new store happen. When we were finished, Colette was beautiful. Trish was very proud of her new store, and her spirits were lifted during the darkest times of chemotherapy and when we received news on March 1 that there was nothing else the doctors could do. Trish died three months after we moved into the new store on March 30, 2012. At that time, as far as Trish knew, Colette was a success, and she had left a wonderful legacy for her daughters. I struggled to maintain that legacy. Although Renee was an energetic young manager, she was an absolute disaster with finances. In early 2013, the electricity at the store was turned off because the bill had not been paid. I brought Skip in to go over the books, and we found that we were behind on everything, including the rent and Indiana sales taxes. The state of Indiana did not take that well and was prepared to shut us down until I came up with $20,000 to bail the store out. I was quickly getting tapped out. Up to this point, other than the renovations and legal issues, I had little involvement in the store. Trish and my daughters liked it that way because Colette was their thing. But this was getting ridiculous, and I couldn't afford to keep bleeding money. So I came in along with Skip and started running the store. If you buy a dress for $60 and sell it for $120, how do you not make money? It just didn't make sense. Skip and I identified several ways that we were losing money. First, my daughters were treating the store like their personal closet <laughs> and taking a lot of the new stuff as soon as it arrived. I had always known this, but figured it was cheaper than them driving to Indianapolis and spending my money at Neiman Marcus. Our employees were also buying the new stuff with their employee discount as soon as it came on the floor. This left all the best clothes basically picked over before they even hit the floor. In addition, the high-end fashion with the highest profit margin, like Free People, was just not selling as well at the new location on campus. After Trisha's death, we had lost most of the local over 40 with money to burn demographic when Trisha's friends stopped coming into the store. In view of these issues, I had the bright idea to buy cheaper and sluttier clothes that might better appeal to the college girls. I started traveling to the LA fashion market where I would spend a couple days picking out skimpy dresses, costume jewelry, and shoes that would sell at Colette. This was a terrible waste of my time. Rather than finding new patents to litigate and new companies to sue, I was instead buying little black dresses, which, as you may or may not know, are the staple of every girl's wardrobe. <laughs> we also started advertising. We hosted special events for the Purdue sororities. We sent out mailers to the incoming freshmen. We sponsored events on campus, getting the Colette name out there and giving away free shit. I also cut a local TV commercial with me as the star. <laughs> looking into the camera in the store with clothes and displays behind me, I asked, are you looking for a gift for your wife? <laughs> My name is Tony Dow, and I own the women's clothing store, Colette. Long story. But if you need a gift, we can help. 
<laughs> I then held up a white blouse for the camera. Would your wife like this? Maybe. How about this? I asked, holding up a blue dress and shrugging. You don't know. Putting the dress down, I continued. Let's face it, we're guys. We don't have a clue. But here's the answer. Pulling a gift card out of the, my suit pocket, I declared... The Colette gift card. <laughs> Cutting to a close-up of the Colette gift card, my voice continued in the background. Because it is not just about the clothes. It is about the entire shopping experience. You can order the Colette gift card online. A couple of clicks, your shopping's done, and you can get back to the game. <laughs> Cutting back to me in the store, I declared, the Colette gift card, it never disappoints. <laughs> the commercial cost about five grand to produce which I paid for, and we aired it during Monday Night Football a couple weeks in a row before Christmas. We sold a grand total of eight $100 gift cards that holiday season. Nevertheless, we persisted. We always believed that some upcoming event would drive more sales and save the store, like Mom's Weekend or the students returning in the fall. In advance of each upcoming event, I would get out my checkbook and invest in more inventory so that we would be ready for the onslaught of profit we would surely receive. That's how businesses work, right? Right? Well, apparently not. By the spring of 2014, I was tapped out. I had no more to invest, and we closed the doors at Colette. We sold off the inventory at pennies on the dollar and whatever fixtures people could carry off and sent the rest to the dump. On May 1st, 2014, Skip and I swept up, locked the doors, left the keys on the counter, and walked out, still owing four months of rent. Although a financial disaster, which could not have come at a worse time, I still remember fondly my days running a women's clothing store. <laughs> Skip always says that maybe I bought Colette for a reason, to allow the community to give something to Trish in her final weeks. He always looks at things that way. Maybe I should, too. Yeah. Aww. That's hilarious. I gotta get my hands on that commercial. I was just gonna say, where do I get that? <laughs> crazy Tony yeah, with the crazy rock bottom right. prices. You don't know. It, it is on YouTube. I can get you the connection. Yes. It's almost like nothing short of losing your shirt, no pun intended, would give you a sense of finality. Like a, like I'm at the bottom of this. I've taken this to the end. The girls didn't even have to go shopping. They could just five-finger yeah, discount that <laughs> shit. Right. And, and so everybody got something out of it, and, and it distracted everyone from the painful truth of, of her loss. I like when he's like, oh, we're going to get on with the slutty outfits for the college girls. <laughs> and he, he doesn't just invest in this. He, he flies to LA yeah. himself. Like, yeah, talk about chasing on. bad money with yeah. good money. His time is worth so much. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go buy outfits instead of litigating. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. I just want the image of you like in this warehouse filled with <laughs> cheap Slutty clothing, skirts and picking out. Oh, this would be great at the store. With oh, yeah. Skip, yeah, yeah. The, the, with Skip, yeah. The coeds will be all over this one. <laughs> like I don't know, it just kills me. I think it's like easy to look back in hindsight, and you have like this broad perspective, and you can kind of see like, oh, there were there were some issues here. But like I, I'm so familiar with that mindset where you just get so hyper focused on something that it's hard to take like a broader like perspective, and you're you're just so focused 
focus you're like well businesses um you know like they they make money so I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm supposed to do to make a business make money and it's, it's kind of hard to like pull back and and take, take a look at the bigger picture so I think it's, it's like, like comedy relatable. yeah you know people in comedy are insane <laughs> they'll just do the next show and the next show and the next show and I don't they don't know how but they're gonna get something and yeah. they'll have an opportunity. And in the meantime, they'll... <laughs> That's put... different, Nancy. That's just true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, Julie. What an episode, huh? And this is where we figure out being an adult and working is really quite hard. This podcast was created by me, Julie Bashkin, in partnership with Alana Kipp and Nancy Beckett and the Second City Training Center. Sound engineering, recording, and original music scores created by Gravity Studios in Chicago. Visit personaldisclosures.com for tips and tricks on how to make your own personal disclosures and to access exclusive personal training and group events with famous best-selling authors and comedians you've seen on TV. Make sure to follow us on Instagram where you may find embarrassing vintage photos from our youth. And please share with your friends and leave a review on Stitcher and iTunes. It helps us out tremendously to get the word out and to bring you more laughs and maybe even some tears every week with new episodes.